This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to the latest episode of Money and Markets. We've got figures and market news galore this week, from inflation data to wage growth to house builders to earnings season in the US. And joining me today is Danny Hewson. Hi, Danny. Hi, Laura. Yes, on top of all that economic and markets news, we've got some figures that you've been crunching on how much Rishi Sunak's decision to freeze income tax bans is costing us. We've also got Tom Selby here to give us an update on what those wage inflation and inflation figures mean for the state pension triple lock, as well as answering a question about tax relief once you're over 75. And I've got some exciting coin news for you at the end of the episode, which you don't want to miss. The interview today as well is with HG Capital Trust about all things tech investing. But first up, I think we should dive into those inflation figures because they came out this morning as we're recording this on Wednesday. So, Danny, give us the headlines of what they said. I think it's fair that they have put the cat among the pigeons somewhat. Um, Expectation consensus had been that inflation would come in around 6.6, down a touch from the 6.7, which is where we landed in August. But surprise, they were sticky. They stuck at 6.7%. That's the headline CPI rate, mainly because of an increase in the price at the pump. And if you have had to fill up recently, you will probably have uttered some kind of expletive when you've got to the pump because it has got incredibly expensive. Also, things like hotels, restaurants, entertainment, all of those things have started to creep up as well. I think a lot of businesses held off on passing a lot of price rises through to consumers as long as they could. And now when they've had to deal with increasing costs themselves, particularly wage costs, they're now at a point where they're saying, you know, we've actually got to do this. A little bit of good news in these figures, though. We did see food inflation, which was actually down month on month for the first time in two years. But looking year on year, also down now at 12.1% from 13.6%. Now, clearly, as we always say when we talk about inflation figures, when we say that inflation numbers are coming down, it doesn't mean that prices are coming down. They're just not going up quite as quickly as they were. Um, but, you know, clearly all of this is creating a huge amount of concern, particularly among the markets, which I'll get to a bit later on. But I thought that maybe this is now going to keep rates higher for longer, even if markets aren't actually thinking that there will be another hike in interest rates from the Bank of England next time out. In fact, expectation for a rate hold firmed today to 80% from about 75 Um And that is despite also yesterday's wage growth numbers, which were also pretty strong, 8.1%, including bonuses. But I think we are starting to see some cracks in the labour market, which is something I think that markets are reflecting when they're looking at expectation for interest rate rises coming up. And it's important to note that we didn't get the full lot of jobs figures on Tuesday. There's been a lot of questions about how those jobs figures are together, how many people are actually talking to the Office for National Statistics, so how reliable they are. So we get those next week. But 
One of the big issues is the oil price. I'm going to talk a bit more about that later. But clearly, the oil price, it's kind of one of the building blocks of inflation. And when you start to see the oil price creep up, it does sound alarm bells. And that is certainly now bringing into question that um, commitment to halve inflation by the end of the year from Rishi Sunak. And I think if you're a betting man, it's kind of 50-50 about now. Yes, he certainly won't have been impressed by today's inflation figures, will he? Having really set his stall against that halving of inflation numbers, this sluggish movement on inflation will not be pleasing him. But there are also implications for the state pension for these figures. So, Tom, why don't you give us the lowdown on what both the wage growth and the inflation figures mean for how much the state pension is going to pay out next year? Yep. So the the state pension, the basic state pension and what's called the new state pension increase in line with the triple lock. So I'm sure lots of listeners will have heard of that. That's the the promise from the government to increase the state pension by the highest of average earnings, inflation or 2.5%. Now, the way the triple triple lock is applied is slightly weird. So they use September's inflation figure, so the figure we've just had, 6.7%, the CPI figure, to decide what the triple lock increase is going to be the following year. And they use July's earnings figure. No idea why they do that, but (laughs) July's earnings figure was 8.5%. So now we know September's inflation figure at 6.7%. We know July's earnings figure was 8.5%. So it looks like it's that 8.5% figure we'll use to increase the value of the state pension next year. So that means that anyone in receipt of the new state pension, so that's the state pension that was built up by everyone post 6th of April 2016, when the system was reformed, anyone who's entitled to the whole new state pension will see that rise by 8.5% to just over £11,500 per year. Now, a slight caveat here, the, the earnings growth figure that's been used historically is one that includes bonus payments. So that's that 8.5% figure. There have been some rumours that the Chancellor may decide to use a figure which strips out that bonus figure because the government's handed out extra money to NHS staff, which has been counted as bonuses. And there's an argument that that's inflated the earnings figure artificially. So it's possible they'll go for a lower figure of 7.8%. So that's the figure that strips out bonuses. Personally, I think it's pretty unlikely they'll do that. We've got a general election coming around the corner. I think any government that's seen to be moving the goalposts on the triple lock to suit its own needs, even if there has been an inflated earnings figure in that particular period of time, it's going to be taking a big political risk. So if if history is repeated, then we'll be seeing an 8.5% boost in the value of the state pension, which of course will be inflation busting, assuming those, those inflation figures continue to come down. And that difference between whether the government decided to increase it by 8.5% or 7.8% doesn't sound like a lot, but actually it's a huge cost to the government, isn't it? Because the state pension represents a big line on the old balance sheet for the government, doesn't it? That's right. Yeah. So we're well over £100 billion, about £110 billion spent on state pensions each year. That amount, of course, is increasing in part because of the triple lock and in part because as a society generally we're aging as as well. So even a small percentage point difference in the amount that those state pensions have to increase will potentially save the Chancellor 
a billion or in excess of a billion, depending on which measure he goes for. So there is a, a fiscal temptation, perhaps, for the Chancellor to do that, given the, the straightened times that the UK economy remains in, but there would be a fairly potentially fatal political price to pay because clearly older voters tend to be tend to vote in large numbers um, and, and hitting them in the pockets when an election so close would be a, a high risk strategy, shall we say. So let's dive into the rest of the market's news now. Those latest inflation numbers have hit UK equities, haven't they, Danny? Yeah, I mean, the higher than expected UK inflation print has really put markets in something of a spin. FTSE 100 down by a bigger than expected uh, 50 points. Uh, FTSE 250 down over 200 points. Um, The AIM All Share down 3.79 points. Sticky inflation really does sort of strengthen that narrative around a higher for longer interest rate. And that then in turn adds to pressures for consumers and for businesses. So if you think about house builders, airlines, banks, utilities, retailers, all of those things have sort of been pulled into this downward trend today. Top of the pile was um, Barrett Developments. Um, It gave back 3.3%, was the leading faller on the FTSE 100 today. That is not just down to interest rates, although interest rates and the current climate clearly playing into its gloomy trading update. It's warned that it expects the difficult backdrop for the housing sector to continue for the coming months. And... uh, We additionally had a very similar gloomy update from Bellway Homes as well. Uh, What's happening is these house builders, despite the fact that there is still incredible demand for homes, it is affordable homes and, of course, affordable homes with affordable mortgages. And a lot of people are looking at mortgages at the moment. They're looking at their rents and thinking, well, I can't save up for a deposit anyway, but they're just feeling that they can't afford the mortgage payment. They are putting off moving and they are making house builders take a really long look at some of their decision-making process. Now, I would say that for house builders, they're in a really weird spot because, of course, we have a general election, which is undoubtedly hurtling towards us. And When we start to see uh, manifestos from political parties, often you see house building front and centre. So it could be that this gloomy situation that house builders find themselves in at the moment is replaced by a sort of dawn of a new era. Build back Britain is something that we are hearing a lot about. But we've also had data out from the Office for National Statistics showing year-on-year UK house price growth has slowed to 0.2% in August from 0.7% in July. But there have been some positives out there, haven't there, on the UK stock market. And one of the big rises today has been Whitbread. Tell us why. Yeah, up 3.3% um, in its half year, which ended on the 31st of August. Uh, it said revenue had climbed 17% annually to 1.57 billion quid, up from 1.35 billion. Um, it's kind of in a, a sweet spot, particularly for its premiere in hotel chain. It's one of those kind of really reliable hotels where 
leisure travellers and business travellers are like are plumping for what they know so that they know that they can get a room for the night which does exactly what it says on the tin without breaking the bump. They're decent enough quality, they're clean, they're in the right places and really Premier Inn seems to be absolutely, you know, wiping the floor at the moment um, with a lot of other hotel chains but just generally that kind of travel has sort of come back, um, even business travel, because despite the fact that we've got Zoom and we've got all those other video meeting um, devices, technology, people do still want the opportunity to go and shake hands to see people. So we are seeing now um, opportunities for the business to build more hotels, not just in the UK, but also in Germany. And one of the things which has really sort of pushed up the share price is the interim dividend um, raised by 40% to 34.1 pence and also a £300 million share buyback program, which really does imply that the company has real confidence in the future of the business. And let's stick with some positivity because we always love that. There has been some positive news out of China as well, hasn't there? Yeah, we've been watching China really since the beginning of the year. And we keep saying China is going to grow. It is going to come out of this zero COVID policy period and really just go for it. And China is important because it has accounted over the last decade for a huge amount of global growth. So when it's not growing, it has an impact not just on China, but also on the rest of the world. Companies that sell stuff to China and to us who buy stuff from China. So the fact that we did see uh, more positive news, the economy growing at a faster than expected rate in the third quarter, 4.9% growth which was much higher than the 4.4% that had been forecast. But of course, we know that the Chinese economy is reliant on these endless merry-go-round of government stimulus. And we also know that it could struggle to really sustain these rates of growth. But one of the key things, I think, which has really sort of captured attention today is the resilience of the Chinese consumer. And that, I think, is going to be something that particularly some of those luxury brands which have posted some quite tricky outlooks in recent weeks will be keeping a close eye on. Now, while we're talking about other countries' fortunes, let's turn to the US because we're now well into earnings season over there. So we're recording this ahead of some results from Tesla and Netflix, but we have already had updates from a number of banks. And how are they looking, Danny? Yeah, even US quarterly earnings season, as usual, has started with the big four banks kicking off proceedings. And it really does give us a bit of an indication of the general health of consumers and businesses and the state of financial markets. And I think it's fair to say it is a bit of a mixed picture, not in terms of mixed because of different fortunes of different businesses, but just because on the one hand, it all looks hunky-dory. And on the other hand, there's a whole load of warnings being uttered by bosses of these banks. So, First out of the blocks, JP Morgan Chase, the world's largest bank by market value, generally seen as a bit of a bellwether for the US economy. 
Third quarter revenue up 22% to $39 billion, beating Wall Street's um, raised forecasts. But although the chief executive, Jamie Dimon, said US consumers and businesses generally remain healthy, there was a big but. I'll get to that in a sec, because all four did well. Windfall profits, third quarter earnings from Citigroup beat estimates. Wells Fargo kept the good news coming. And rounding things off just today, Bank of America joining other big lenders in earning more on loan interest payments while also benefiting from better than expected performance in investment banking and trading. But, and this is the but, Jamie Dimon said that the macroeconomic outlook was uncertain. He really led the charge here. There was a lot of narrative um, from other bank bosses as well, saying more is being set aside for bad loans. He said it is the most dangerous time for the world in decades. The caution is needed. We've got wars, soaring debt, and of course, interest rates, decision making from the likes of the Federal Reserve. And he said he's hoping for the best, but preparing the business for the worst. So I think that is sending something of a chill through investors. Um, In terms of the UK, bank results kick off with Barclays on the 20th of October. And of course, you and Tom mentioned it last week, but clearly among all of the terrible news coming out of Israel and Gaza, um, investors are also very nervous about that situation in the Middle East. Yeah, Tom Sieber and I were chatting about it last week, and uh, we've seen uh, head of um, Wall Street opening today, Wednesday lunchtime, growing tensions really in the Middle East, uh, are sort of affecting futures in a very gloomy way, um, spurring demand for safe haven assets. Um, also, of course, we're in earnings seasons, so there's a lot of focus on that as well. But the big thing, and I mentioned it briefly earlier, and so I'd get to it. Oil prices up nearly 3% today on concern about potential supply disruptions. We've got gold prices near one-month highs. And the big concern clearly is that the potential impact of the rising oil price could restart the whole inflation scenario again. We know oil is one of the building blocks of inflation. It plays a huge part in making stuff, in delivering stuff, in getting to places. So there is a lot of concern about what any increase in tension, any disruption to oil supply, what that could do to the global economy. Now, Moving on from markets on that gloomy note, um, because inflation figures have also had another implication, and that was that they should have set the amount that income tax bans increase by next year. That, of course, affects how much we're all taxed, so we all pay very close attention to that. But things are frozen at the moment. So you've been looking at the figures, Laura, figuring out how much this freeze is actually costing us. So first of all, let's just have a recap of those frozen tax bans. 
Yeah, I think it's important to go back over a tiny bit of the history. So effectively, Rishi Sunak, um, so our now Prime Minister, but at the time he was Chancellor under Boris Johnson, um, introduced the policy of freezing income tax bans. So normally they would rise with inflation each year so that if your wages went up, um, you weren't taxed extra on that amount effectively. And that this sets two key bands, your personal allowance, which is the amount of money that you can earn tax-free each year, and the threshold at which you start to pay higher rate income tax, so 40% tax. So the Rishi Sunak policy was to freeze these bands rather than increasing them each year. Um, and then that has since been extended. So the the freeze will run from the 2021-22 tax year all the way through until the 2027-28 tax year. So a big chunky period where we're not going to see those thresholds increase. So what should the tax bans actually have risen to today if they hadn't been frozen? So for a bit like Tom talked about earlier when he was talking about the state pension triple lock, the September inflation figure is the one that's used to determine what these income tax bans would increase by. So obviously from next year, they're not going to increase because they're frozen. But had they, they would have increased by the 6.7% reading that we got for inflation today. Um, So I've tracked back through the freeze and worked out um, what the bans would be from April next year if we hadn't been in this frozen situation. And so as it is, the personal allowance, so that tax-free amount that you can earn, is £12,570 at the moment. However, from April next year, it would have been £15,225. So a big difference, and effectively that means the difference between that you're being taxed on where you wouldn't otherwise have been. Um, I looked at the same figures for the higher rate threshold. So at the moment, it's just over £50,000 before you have to pay um, higher rate income tax. So it's £50,270 to be exact. But from April next year with today's inflation reading, that would have actually increased to £60,800. 86 pounds so almost 61,000 pounds a dramatic difference there and I think it really helps to highlight how this freeze which I think to some people sounds a bit of a weird concept they don't quite understand how it's going to affect them it really helps to lay bare how this freeze is impacting our finances and of course it doesn't just run up until April next year it runs for another few years after that and so um, we would have seen a much bigger increase. And, and partly that's because we're in a period of high inflation. And so the government has actually saved itself a lot more money than it planned to because it would have had to have made these meaty increases to these income tax thresholds because inflation is so high at the moment. Stealthy indeed. So when we look at different earners, how much is that costing different earners? Yeah, because I think there's been a lot of talk about how much this is netting the government. So there's been some really good figures that have come out that have said that it's actually going to generate £52 billion a year by 2027 for the government. And those are huge figures and they really kind of lay bare how the government's profiting. But I thought surely people really want to know how much it's actually costing them. Um, And it's obviously 
their share of that 52 billion that they're having to pay. So I broke it down by a few different um, income levels. So 33,000 pounds, which is the average UK wage um, for someone who was earning that at the start of the freeze over the entire period of the freeze, they would be paying 2,650 pounds. They're about more in tax um, for the duration of the freeze. But obviously the higher your income the, the more tax that you're you're paying effectively because of the freeze. So someone at £50,000, and this is quite a tricky area because if you're earning £50,000 at the start of the freeze, generally those inflation increases each year would have meant that you've been protected from the 40% earnings band. But because they've been frozen, as you see wage growth and as you see your normal kind of um, statutory or annual pay rises come through, you'll start, you'll creep into that 40% pay band. And so for those people, the total tax bill for them across the duration of the freeze is just over £13,000. It's £13,400. So it's a huge amount more tax that you're handing over over the time of that freeze. Um, And I think hopefully that helps to explain a bit about why people like me get so angry about the stealth tax and the frozen tax bands, because it's quite sneaky on the government's part in the fact that the average person on the street doesn't really understand how this affects them. But actually, as we can see there, to the tune of thousands of pounds, it's costing average workers. And next up, we've got Tom back in Pensions Corner. This week, he's answering a question about how pension tax works when you're over 75. So we had someone write in saying, I'm 76 years old and retired. Can I pay into my pension and get tax relief from HMRC? Tom? Double pensions. This is the way the podcast should always be. Um, So first of all, let's go through some of the main allowances that exist for your pensions on an annual basis. So how much you can pay into a pension each year and still get tax incentives for doing that. So lots of people will be familiar with these. So we've got the main annual allowance. So that's set at £60,000 for the current tax year. And that covers your personal contributions, your employer contributions, and any pension tax relief that you get as well. Now, In addition, your annual pension contributions are limited to 100% of your UK earnings. So as a simple example, if you're earning £20,000 in a tax year, then that's the maximum that you can personally contribute to a pension, inclusive of your upfront tax relief, regardless of what your annual allowance is. Now, there are two other annual allowances which may affect some people. I won't go into these in detail, but there's the the tapered annual allowance. So that applies to very high earners and can mean that your annual allowance drops as low as £10,000. And then there's the money purchase annual allowance or MPAA that kicks in when you flexibly access taxable income from your retirement pot and reduces your annual allowance to £10,000. So when I say flexibly access, that means, for example, taking taxable income from your pension through drawdown post age 55. Now, getting on to the meat of the question, um, if you're a non-earner and you're aged under 75, now that's key here, under 75, you can still contribute up to £3,600 per year, inclusive of tax relief to your pension. So that equates to a personal contribution of 2,880 quid with the remaining 720 quid provided by basic rate tax relief at 20%. However, unfortunately, getting to the question here, once you reach your 75th birthday, 
the government stops providing pension tax relief on personal contributions. And so that removes that upfront incentive that you have to save through a pension with your own personal money. So if you're not going to get that tax relief, is it still worth saving into a pension? And can you even do that? Can you pay into a pension um, post age 75, even if you're not getting the tax relief? So it is possible in some circumstances that pension saving will remain attractive after the age of 60, uh, 75, Sorry, particularly if your priority is passing on money tax efficiently to your loved ones after you die. So, so money held in pensions is not usually subject to inheritance tax, IHT, and if you die after age 75, any unused funds will be taxed as income when your nominated beneficiary or beneficiaries come to make a withdrawal. So there are limited circumstances where it might make sense, but that won't always be the case for, for everyone. Now, if if people are looking for an alternative savings vehicle for their spare cash, um, of course, you've got your £20,000 a year subscriptions allowance for ISAs, which offer the same tax-free investment growth as pensions and can be accessed tax-free at any time. Um, worth noting, of course, that any funds you have left in an ISA will count towards your estate for IHT purposes. There are, there are, there are other vehicles that offer upfront incentives that are, they're a bit higher risk. You'll need advice to go with those. So things like enterprise investment schemes, seed enterprise investment schemes, they offer you incentives in order to invest in what are usually startup high risk companies. So you, you'd need to make sure you do your homework and seek professional advice before going down that, that road, because it's something quite different to investing in a fund that's a multi-asset fund that's kind of balanced and invest around the world. It'll be much, much riskier if you go down that route. Lovely. Thanks for explaining that. Now, we've got some great coin news coming up. But first, our interview this week is with HG Capital. People tend to think of investing in tech startups as a risky space, but that's not the kind of tech investing that private equity HG Capital Trust is doing. Tom Sieber caught up with Jim Strang, who's a non-executive director and chairman of the board at HG Capital Trust, asked him about how the team sifts through all the opportunities and the red flags and the current market conditions. Good morning, Jim. So um, perhaps you could tell me a little bit about the investment strategy that underpins HG Capital. Sure. So so HG uh, Capital Trust is obviously a private equity focused uh, investment company um, that, that is managed by HG. So HG is um, one of the larger, now one of the larger private equity managers based in Europe. And for the chemists in the room, they'll know that HG is Mercury. So a long, long time ago, this was Mercury Asset Management, and this is the private equity bit of that of that entity. Um, and what it does in terms of the strategy that the board effectively has backed HG to implement is is targeting software and and what we would call technology enabled business services companies um, across Western Europe and and North America. Um, and what we're doing is are buying into these obviously these large businesses of scale. So this is not venture capital. This is the very different thing. Um, and we do it across actually because it's a kind of a, what is technology. It's a mile wide. We a, we actually do it in eight subsectors. So there's eight subsectors of focus that that frame the investment strategy. And what we're doing is deploying capital. We're HG rather is deploying capital in really in three different scales of business. So basically. Um, large, bigger, and even bigger still would be the, the way I would describe it. 
um, into those eight clusters and then looking to create value. That's the the magic. So that's kind of a world away, I guess, from investing in sort of racy tech startups. It's it's a very different um, approach from that. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's uh, these businesses are are all pr- proven entities. They're all sort of free cash flow generating at scale. Um, t- typically, they have you know, leadership positions in their market spaces, so they're they're sort of the proven entity. Um, with significant proven or established customer bases that are are pretty resilient and, and actually re- re- repeating customers effectively. So the you know the the, the, so the opposite of um, you know if you're in a consulting business, then every year you start January one with zero revenue effectively. And in this business, you start with significantly your revenue. You know what it is because it's a sort of con- contracted basically. So that's what they are. So it's it's. Um, I'm afraid if you're looking for excitement <laughs> and uh, and and stuff, you're looking in the wrong place. It's that's, that's not what we do. Um, kind of within the the area that you operate, in, what kind of volume of opportunities are you seeing at the moment, um, and how does that compare to previous periods? Uh well, I mean, I think on on the opportunities, the way I would describe it, um, is sort of you know at one level, there's multiple private companies to public. So, you know, there's 10, there's a thousand public companies in the UK in terms of what's, and that's just the UK, in terms of the number of private ones that are addressable, it, it's a significant multiple of that. Um, and when you look at our, through our lens, I mean, I think you know, that there's no, there's no shortage of opportunity. In fact, there's a sort of a, there's almost too much. And actually that's why the focus matters because you could spend all your time running around in circles. So, you know, it's thousands and thousands. I don't know how many thousands and thousands, but it is thousands and thousands um, of, of potential businesses. And, and actually, the, the the trick is to figure out what you're not going to do. I mean, this is well, strategy is all about what you're not going to do to some extent. And that's actually a key thing for us is to, or for the company is to figure out where to focus and what patterns to look for. Because one of the ways you mitigate risk is pattern recognition. So it's knowing what to look for within this world where there's there's many many opportunities and. I would say what's happening on that um, in terms of the quantum, I think the market continues to grow um, in terms of new businesses get created and proven. And the great thing about software businesses, not what we do or the company does, but in terms of the nature of software businesses, they actually scale quite fast because they they, they don't like a, like a typical business would suck in cash as it grows. And actually software businesses tend to have the opposite. They throw off cash as they grow because of the, the way their revenue cycle works. So actually, you can start them up and grow them quite quickly, which which means it's it's sort of a market that continues to see new businesses created. Could you talk me through a little bit about um, the the process of kind of passing through that large, um, I guess, universe of potential investments that you can you can invest in, and about the kind of pattern pattern recognition that you talked about? Yeah. Yep. Sure. So, I think the. One of the one of the screens is obviously we we operate this the company operates this cluster based model where the eight clusters are really where the investment teams spend all their time, um, and I mean the tax and accounting is probably the the most obvious one. Um, there's a there's a bunch of others. There's obviously legal and compliance is another one. Um, they they tend to be services which are sort of firmly embedded inside the activities of businesses. Um, more, none more so than tax and accounting. Um, only, only that's fifty percent of the certainties of life accounted for in that one cluster. Um, 
and the and the idea is um, you, you're looking for businesses where they are, as I said, proven at scale with market positions that suggest they know they know what they're doing. They've, they've reached some sort of position of leadership. And then what you're looking for, again, is this um, software model, software as a service or SaaS software, which, which you know, for you and I, the easiest way to describe it, it's like your Excel subscription. So, you know, you pay your six quid a month to Microsoft and you get your Excel subscription and that gives you access to Excel. Well, sort of similarly in the, in in these businesses, if you're if you're in the account, if you need an accounting package to, to to do your books, then you would be doing the similar thing. You'd be paying for a um, a service where you you subscribe every year for access to the platform, and it you know the platform develops meets your needs, and hopefully it continues to meet them over time. And that's what you do. So when you when you look at these businesses, I mean, from what I understand from Bryce anyway, the 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 way to think about it is the the recurring revenue that you have is significantly above 90%. So the, because again, you know, if you're, if you are a business and you're using a software tool to run your accounting, as long as you're in business, you're going to need it the next year. So, and, and it's very unlikely that you'll switch because the, it's just painful to switch for obvious reasons. So, so as long as, you know, there's a good, as long as the business keep delivering value, which is absolutely apparent, right? Got to, you know, keep doing the job that they need to for the customers, then you know, you've got this sort of high recurring revenue. So you, when you look at the business, I guess, when you, you I look at it as a new investment, you go, okay, well, you know, what is it? Is it in, is it in one of the magic eight? Um, where does it sit inside its own particular market? Um, what's, and what's the model? So how much of this recurring revenue, uh, res, resilient, repeatable model does it actually have? And then obviously the other thing as well, what do you, what would you do from there, right? So what, what can you do to it to help it grow? help it go faster or bigger, broader, bigger, whatever it may be. Um, and what, you know, I guess what great private equity firms do is they, they look at these models for value creation and go, how many times have we done this before? So it's, it's you know, using the, the, la the last thing you want to do is like have to invent it for the first time because you, you're probably going to make a mistake, right? Because it's just human nature. You won't get it all right. So the idea is try and do something that you know how to do. Um, and the more that you've done it, the better that you get and the better you underwrite the risk of doing it and, and ultimately what you can achieve. And that's hopefully what drives the outcomes. And, that, and that's the sort of the other piece. So there's a clear clear sort of looking through the telescope for a particular kind of business um, and also a particular kind of approach to how you would try and build value over, over the time that you would and, that, and mash the two together. And that's the investment strategy. What kind of resources um, do you have at your disposal and, and kind of how important is the engagement, I guess, with the underlying businesses that, that you're invested in? Yes. Yeah, so, so that HG, um, who we, we obviously um, benefit from as the manager of the company, have pretty significant team. So it's it's a couple of hundred people that are that are in this business. And I think as well, there's there's really a there's a few different ways to think about it. So there is a an an investment organization which has um, those that are charged with finding these businesses and the clusters and, and understanding what fits the profile and how they would how you would go about value creation. And those are broadly aligned to the three different fund strategies because the, the the fund strategies are all about scale. So there's the the sort of the, the big one, the very big one, or the even bigger still one. Then there sat there's three planets: Mercury, Genesis, and Saturn. And so their investment teams are are broadly aligned into those fund structures determined by scale. And then there's there's a there's a what are 
we basically call it an operating group, um, which is about 60 or 70 people uh, internally, plus a whole bunch that aren't. And and they are there to try and validate what the value creation uh, growth opportunity might be uh, and to help in the doing. Um, and that's quite actually quite well, well, very well, frankly, very well thought through around how to do that. So there's, you know, what, how much, how much resource and capability do the companies have? What could be added from this, this um, framework? Uh, and indeed, actually, the other thing that that there is a real real advantage because everything we do broadly rhymes. All these businesses can learn not just from whatever the HG team can bring to bear, but from each other. Sure. So, so a there's network, a sort of a almost yeah, yeah, and it's called Hive. Like it's the Hive sure. mind. So the Hive mind helps with that as well. So you, you basically have these sort of management team who run the businesses, um, support group which augments the management team internally. Management teams working with other management teams to help understand and crack problems, and then external resources brought in to solve problems as needed. And that's kind of best practice for private equity. So they've basically got that. And um, in terms of the kind of the other side of the coin, I guess, are, are there any particular red flags that would put you off an investment? At what 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 other things and and potentially sort of are, are there any factors that might see you exit an investment? Yeah, so I need to be careful on the boys here because clearly, you know, we are the board and they are the manager. So we, we are we are relying on their judgment and are judging their judgment effectively. But I mean, like anecdotally, I'd say that the the, the way I would describe it is I think that um, you know the because of the nature of of the way that the HG operates. It tends to see things coming from a very long way out, so you know that you might you might think that you know if someone calls you up says do you want to buy this company you have a think about it and you make your mind up I, I ain't how it works. So the sort of lead least time on doing deals is is years. I think the last time I heard it was six. So so they've seen these things from a very long time out, and that and that means you know you get a good chance to get under the skin of it to see it how it develops figure out how it's going understand where it sits what you would do with it etc um and so the 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 idea is to sort of you know try and not be surprised by stuff but, but because actually the 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 biggest risk problem that you've really got is the lack of time if you and you know if you get no time to do something you potentially make a bad decision but loads of time then you're generally going to make a better one um and that and that typically tends to be tends to be the way that it works um and so i mean i think like like all investment companies there's always the sort of notion of okay what, what are we what are we acquiring what could we do with it and how much do we pay to go on the journey um and that's obviously a factor so you know the you, you can the, the one of the challenges i guess in in the world that, that this company operates is pe- people certainly have taken um let's just say a different view on risk. So and a different view on risk means a different view on price. So you, you can find you know those that, that perhaps operating in a different way um will take a different view on, on how to do something. Um and and you and you therefore get royally blown from the water uh, when it when the time comes around. 
and that's and that's fine right so that you know that's one of these things where you you, know, you have to sort of hold your line and, and that, i think actually one of the things the board monitors pretty closely is you know do does hg stick to that do they like you know they everything has a limit and and do they do they know where the boundaries are and do they stick to the limits and, and that's actually something we would obviously check and we're confident that they do so that's the sort of dynamic of it all that's really helpful and what about any particular trends or themes that you're seeing evident in the market at the moment or are there any sort of unifying themes that you're seeing uh well i mean i think you know th- at a couple of different levels so I mean, at, at one level um so pri- private equity full stop has slowed down a bit so i mean unsurprisingly if you think about the big bad world that we live in i mean if it hadn't slowed down you'd be even more worried than if it had um so so it's definitely slowed down um and i think well that's it sort of led to a bit of a flight to quality so um it's it's sort of in the cycle um and the cycle for private equity is raise money invest money do good stuff sell things get money back repeat repeat rinse repeat um they see that slow down manifesting in lots of different parts of that so the, on the raising money bit it's a lot harder than it's ever been happily for, for us and for HG they've actually done a really good job they've raised all the money so they, they're that immediately puts you in the uh, you know the knockout stages of the World Cup I mean, you've done a pretty good job to raise the money um, and then the investment machinery is going slower than it has gone in the past so it's but it's not stopped but it, because of the US I noticed you, this you know you have this six year lead time so they're you know things have been bubbling away for a while so they're continuing to bubble so there's still activity but it's not at the same level out on the way in and on the way out actually there's also activity it's just you know that what's happening in private markets is there's still things that are happening it's just the really good stuff you know the 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 trophy best of the best businesses are are still transacting and that's that's what you see everywhere you're no exception to that um so you know those are the trends at the sort of cycle level um i mean the other the other thing as well and i mean this is a sort of a Oh, really? Uh, comment is that we're a bit focused on AI um, because everything's a software company. So, uh, but actually, what's reassuring around that is, um, and again, like border, I think exactly in the right mindset, which is we got to be all over this. And so, you know, when, when we start push, pushing and probing to go, are we all over this? Then we, we the, the feedback we get is, you know, we're not only are we all over it, but we've been all over it for several years. You just haven't asked us the question yet. So, so you know they they've been in partnership with OpenAI rather than just you know, they've been doing stuff together for three or four years and they're, they're, you know they're way ahead of everybody in terms of our thinking anyway trying to think of how do we deal with this right so it's because the the whole premise of that sort of software disruption to business models is um is be on the right side of that so be the one that's doing the disrupting rather than the one that gets disrupted um and I think that's a key key thing um because it's just lend itself so much to software um and we see it. Right, we see it. We see it already, and and actually, the the benefits of it have, have are really are very apparent. So there's you know some of the statistics around the efficiency gains that the coders get. So there's obviously a bunch of coders that do all the work. Um, you can see how it makes them more efficient to be used copilot to help code and solve problems that maybe they couldn't solve otherwise. So that's a big talk. So there's the sort of a what happens to this industry around um, a technological disruption through ai is a sort of a front and center and and i think we kind of you know continue to every time we have a board meeting ask ourselves a question of what we're missing excellent thanks very much jim
And finally, I wanted to bring you some news of new coins that are going to be hitting our pockets and piggy banks before the end of the year. So these are the new coins with King Charles III's head on them. But they've also undergone a change, which the Royal Mint says will help children with their counting. So you can Google it and find pictures of these new coins. But the new coins will have large numbers on them, taking up almost half of the tails side of the coins. And then also on that side, it will feature pictures of animals and flowers on that side too. Now, Rebecca Morgan, who is director at the Royal Mint, told the BBC that large numbers on these coins will help appeal to children who are learning to count and also to parents who are trying to teach their kids about using money. And at the same time, she said that the animals and all the things that you see on the coins will appeal to children. So I think it's quite a nice touch to try and engage kids more with money. And we know that kind of physical cash use is declining. And we know that we need all opportunities we can to get kids more involved in financial education and learning about money and numbers. Um, So this seemed like a really nice nod to it. They'll be in circulation before the end of the year. And they'll be permanent coins. So these aren't kind of a commemorative limited run of coins these are going to be what the coins will be from now on so they'll be around for years or maybe even decades Uh, but don't worry you can still use your existing coins as well I used to give my kids marbles and put them in jam jars instead of coins just because they were terrible with you know touching stuff, then putting their fingers in their mouths. And I just think about all the hands that coins have been through. So I used (laughs) to give them marbles instead. And I would tell them that each marble equated to 10 pence. And then they would add those up, empty them out. And, you know, it was just a way to get them counting. But I do Mm -hmm. think that anything like that is just so good because it is so easy to lose that, that visual, isn't it? Yeah, and that link between money and numbers and, you know, actually spending, I think with everything being so digital these days, it's quite hard to explain that to a kid now, isn't it? Whereas if you've got coins with big numbers on them, I think that would really help. That is everything for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we will be celebrating, can you believe it, Laura, our five-year podcast anniversary. Hope you can join us then. Bye-bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.